Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the I Have for Evolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? Coach Freddie here on the iHemp Revolution Roadshow. We are at the South Carolina Industrial Hemp Symposium in Florence, South Carolina at the Florence Darlington Tech Center, hosted by Representative Robert Williams. Okay, we're going to welcome the CEO of Sunstrand to Dr. Biddle, um, the CEO of Sunstrand, the leading supplier of biomaterials for technical and industrial applications. Sunstrand currently operates the only industrial-scale commercial hemp decortification facility in North America capable of producing technical grade fibers. Dr. Riddle is the former president of the Kentucky Hemp Industries Association and a member of the Hemp Industry Roundtable. He started his career in engineering performing accelerated structural testing on wind turbine blades. Prior to Sunstrand, he founded Gradient Engineering, an engineering services firm focused on polymer composite applications. Dr. Riddle received his BS and PhD in mechanical engineering from Montana State University and a master's from Cornell University. If you guys want to welcome, this is, he's going to be talking a lot about supply chains and fiber production, which is really where, you know, this industry is going to end up as soon as we start getting more people like Dr. Riddle and Sunstrand on board with, with building more infrastructure around this industry. So please give him a warm welcome. different than cotton was 150 years ago. You know, no, no different than 
uh, olive oil or whatever. I mean, it, it's, these are really the goal is it should be a commodity. And in order to be a commodity, it's going to be treated to some degree like a commodity and not, not terribly special. I mean, it's special, but it still is a, is a plant and it still has to have a business model that's successful. And uh, because of this type of power, I heard the name of Dream Crusher. But anyway, I've got a presentation here I'm going to roll through, and uh, I'll try to go fast, a little bit of a fire hose, and I put this together for a lot of different aspects of, of what we do in the industry, and hopefully if you can have a couple questions at the end to figure out what you really want to hear about. Uh, some trans materials company, we just happen to focus on natural or what we call biomaterials. Uh, in general, uh, we make those compatible with other existing materials, and so that they can be used in existing manufacturing processes. Uh, we basically operate under direct contracts with farmers, so they grow for us to our specifications. They deliver the raw feedstock to our plant, and from there we begin to process our products for the bass family and avenue and flax. That all looks like bales up on the left, and our products look like fiber particulates. We know it as the fiber in the herd of the plant. Almost in all cases, our customers are upstream manufacturers, and in many cases, their customers are upstream manufacturers. These are complex supply chains of which our portion of hemp is a raw material. And in, in essence, we have to uh, engage at about four levels before it ends up in the consumer hand. That's not always true. There are some applications, you know, animal bedding or something that are basically direct and ready, but for the large part, uh, you're talking about needing to engage in a complex supply chain. It also requires complex processes. This is our facility in, in Kentucky. I don't, it's kind of hard to tell, but there's one thing you can tell you a lot of pipes, uh, if nothing else. Uh, so we've got about 25,000 square foot processing facility. Uh, it's pretty sophisticated. It does a lot more than decortication, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, at any rate, we've got about 140,000 square foot building just for storage of raw materials. Capital intensive, facility intensive. Uh, it's a lot of work. All right, so let's talk a little bit about, about fiber. Um, so you guys, I think, are pretty familiar. Hemp is, is part of the vast family. And in that sense, hemp is a fiber crop that's not unique. All vast family, all vast fiber plants basically have the same global plant biology, which is an outer fiber sheath and an inner woody core. In general, the fiber makes up around 25%. It depends. Flax is going to break 30%. You know, hemp can happen in that range. And then the inner core making up the large part of it. Which is why I actually say we're not a fiber company, we're a herd company. Because we're making twice as much herd as we are fiber. Well, everybody really wants to talk about the fiber, but there's no, there's no business model in this universe for a processor like us that does not consider both elements of the plant and create a business model around both elements of the plant. Uh, just to further illustrate this point, I, I, let's get some, some engagement from the audience. Let's shout out, you know, which one of these is them? Shout out. These are all fiber crops. You've got jute, canaf, hemp, and flax. And they're almost, in some degree, indistinguishable, at least from uh, afar, anyhow. And as a processor, there are also a lot of similarities there as well. And so my, my point here is that, you know, as a fiber crop, not only does hemp have to compete with traditional materials as a fiber, it's to compete with polypropylene, polyester, glass fiber, carbon fiber, or, or other natural fibers, animal fiber, wool fiber, alpaca fiber. It also has to compete with other natural fibers like jute, canap, flax, 
And so when you look at it, you've got to look at it the business case. Where in the world does that fall in the spectrum as a plant, as a, as a fiber crop? And it's only going to compete, it's only going to be successful if you compete on those levels. There are some exceptions to the rule. So I like to break it out into two different industries. You've got your artisan and you've got your industrial, right? And the artisan is an amazing market. And it's going to be a really great opportunity for 12 people. Uh, or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. It, it's, but some people are going to be really good, and they're going to do great things. They're going to do regenerative agriculture. They're going to get some really expensive handbags and boutiques in New York. And that's going to be really exciting. But when we talk about major agricultural penetration, it comes down to literally industrial hemp. And it comes down to traditional agricultural models. And that's the type of model my business is it's, it's industrial, and that's, that's what we do. I mean, nothing wrong with artisan, but if you want to talk about thousands and thousands of acres, that's got to look like a, another commodity. And it's got to look like industrial processes as opposed to hand processes as well. And so there's, you know, the decortication works at both levels. And by the way, decortication, I, I don't even know where the word came from, uh, but generically it means separating the, out the fiber from the core material fundamentally. And you can do that at arts level by hand. Uh, oftentimes there's, you know, you know, the handbrake on the previous slide or stripping it by hand is what they do in Bangladesh when you're seven years old. Uh, you know, there's some machines you can get, some little, some little magic units from China that you can shove some stalks in there and it'll separate it for you. Um, generally that's what you're talking about is processing by hand at the arts level. You're talking about processing stalk. At the industrial level, generally we're talking about processing bales. We're talking about standard format bales, be those uh, large square bales or standard ground bales. There's some potential to use silage uh, choppers, but generally they don't work with our system. We need bales, we need long fiber, um, but there are some other opportunities around that. And in general, in the industrial process, the bale processing is centralized. You know, there's a big facility and it has to come to that facility. It isn't done distributed out, you know, on the field or in smaller facilities around the, around the province area. Uh, a little bit about markets, uh, because there is some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, that's for sure. Because um, manufacturers need alternatives to existing materials. They need low-cost alternatives, they need lightweighting options, they need uh, performance materials, they need things that reduce environmental hazards. I don't know if those fabricated glass fibers. You can charge about an extra 10%. It's not an environmentally friendly issue. It's not an eco-green marketing campaign. It's just that glass fiber is hazardous. There's a lot of other materials like that as well. So there are options for what we call biomaterials, of which hemp is one of them, and, and, and the markets are looking for them. So we took a group, at least our space, into three clumps. Non-wovens, composites, and functional additives. And these have massive different potential avenues. You've got automotive, building materials, consumer goods, and, um, you know, everything from geotextiles to injection molded parts. We make toothbrushes and, and coffee mugs, uh, 3D printing, and uh, I mean, all, you know, basically anything that's made of plastic could have some amount of material in it, depending on what the plastic is. These are major markets. These are, you know, billions of dollar markets that are growing at 5% per year. And so there's an existing framework to start dropping in materials like this, but there's also the potential, once the supply chain is built out, that we can find new and exciting, innovative applications for the materials. Here's some few examples of, of companies we work with. Uh, Raytech makes plastic injection molding pellets for their project for a Tesla dashboard. 
Platform makes non-woven nests and project for door uh, panels and forward. Holmes Corning makes a, uh, a lot of things, but in this particular case, uh, acoustic insulation mats for your dishwasher, so you watch the ball game washing your beer glass, so you can hear the ball game, you know. Uh, fibers fix furnace filters, and turns out you put some biofiber in the furnace filter, it increases the performance by about 10%. This is a good one. RF Wastewater is actually a company out of North Carolina. Uh, they developed the technology to adapt existing wastewater treatment facilities and flood our canaf biomedia on the surface, increase the efficiency of the wastewater treatment. They needed a very specific bimodal distribution of the particles that we helped them come up with. We didn't do anything on the wastewater side, just on the on the uh, on the core side. And uh, this application didn't exist before the material was available, right? So this is one of those examples about fostering new innovation and whoever the incubator person was. I mean, these are kind of things that I think we now have opportunities for is if we do have a supply chain, how do we go above and beyond a drop-in? Like, you know, Flexforms importing canal from Bangladesh, how do we supplant that? What else can we do that are new and exciting things? 3D printing is becoming very, very sexy. I don't I don't know where it's going to go, honestly, but I know that we helped 3D print the largest structure made on a bio-based material in the world. It's a bad picture. Those are benches in the bottom left. Those benches are about 20 feet long. There's an entire pavilion printed in Miami uh, with a gazebo and a bar and all these benches. And it's on display there for three years in one of the parks. It's got our bamboo fiber in it. Uh, it's pretty cool, just like this, uh, this table right here. Uh, we're working on projects with Patagonia and USG, ceiling tiles, clothing, and coasters. Uh, generally, we're a raw material supplier, uh, but we have we have actually developed two different products in house that we'll be rolling out in one in a, about six weeks and one at the end of the year. Uh, this is our 600 ton press where we can make our wall sheeting, particle board, or hardboard products similar to OSB or substrates for um, for wood uh, and furniture. Problem with that is that hemp will never compete with wood. I said it. I'm that guy. At 50 bucks a ton, there's not a farmer in here that's going to grow uh, hemp and, and take it off the field and process it. That's what, that's what wood is. 40, 40 bucks a ton, 50 bucks a ton, high end 70, 75 bucks a ton. It's just paper is just not really an option. Building materials like that are just not really an option to compete at a price point. But there are situations where there can be compelling performance metrics that do warrant the additional cost of the hemp based product. The wall board, maybe not so much, but there are lead points. That are available, and of course, just green building in general has become very exciting, and people are willing to pay a premium for that. And if you're willing to pay a premium, you can have a premium product. But the concept that it would be the same cost as wood is, is probably not likely to ever happen. Uh, I'm still really excited about the product. I think we'll sell a lot of it, and you guys should all put it in your house and hang it on your walls. But uh, but but who knows where it'll go? Thermal insulation is actually a pretty good one. So uh, this is a. Uh, a large, lofty, non-woven mat, three and a half inch, five and a half inch. It's a direct replacement for glass fiber in your walls. Again, it's a little bit more expensive, uh, but not terribly expensive. It's definitely an option for somebody if they want to have a green material in their house. And we started working on these products because, frankly, we weren't sure that Hempcrete is a big opportunity. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever built a house of Hempcrete. We've been involved in quite a few Hempcrete house programs, and they are manually intensive. Um, there's some quality, I think, associated with the with the wall system, and that people say they breathe and whatnot. And I think that's true. Um, not a lot of data on that sort of thing out there, but uh, but nevertheless, people like it. But this is an option for people who want to build with hemp. 
that want to build traditional stick frame construction. And, uh, you know, your, your contractor can actually work with the materials and uh, it's kind of just drop in. So anyway, that's the exciting stuff. Let's talk about on the farm a little bit. Because uh, we're not doing this alone. I mean, we actually are not a technology company. We're a supply chain company. And I think that's one, one of the critical elements we're trying to send home here is the investment in the whole supply chain from the farm to the to the users. You know, our team, our engineers, we help with application support, we help customers and manufacturers learn how to use our product. We were thankful in that right from day one we went to UK to help us develop our agricultural procedures. We spent three years, I think we probably still are, we're certainly the largest funder of hemp agricultural research at UK, which I think meant we're the largest funder of hemp agricultural research in the country. It's an invaluable tool and I'm really excited that there's almost some forcing of the industries or universities to be involved. I think they're great assets and great tools. Standard uh, agronomy trials are not to be underestimated. I know everybody wants to just go out there and plant like crazy. You can learn so much from the universities, control trialing. It's worth every penny that gets put into those, uh, into those research camps. These are some of our farmers. Um, at the top there is Canaf. That's like 30-day-old Canaf. Um, double cropping looks really interesting, following winter wheat. Is something that should be considered as part of the rotation. In general, we're a drop in for corn and soybeans. Uh, in this case, it'd be double crop beans. Uh, but I think that double cropping should be looked at. And also, dual cropping, we haven't done much of it, but there's some interesting things around growing for grain and for fiber. Uh, Joe, look happy hemp farmers in those pictures. Two things you don't see in those hemp fields are smiles and noses. Uh, but, you know, you guys will learn next year. <laughs> Uh, so, so what does it mean to the farmer? Uh, you know, I mean, I heard some. You know, I heard we hear a lot about the decline of tobacco and, uh, and its impact on the economy and agriculture networks, and it's really sad. It's a shame, and we want to do everything we can to help solve those problems. Um, and maybe CBD can do that, uh, but traditional industrial products cannot. Not not replace tobacco in the sense that people are going to make two to four thousand dollars an acre. That's never going to happen. Maybe in a complex CBD model where you're trimming Christmas trees and running running lines, uh, bar lines, perhaps. But what we think we do offer definitely is diversification. You know, every farm should have diversification. We offer specialty crop, crop contracts, you know, which give you stability uh, over fluctuation commodity price, and security on a per year basis when you grow for us. For non-food crops, whatever that's worth, I think there's you know. You know, if we're going to bring out new crops, that could be the industrial non-food. Um, in terms of economics, our goal, we think we can get there within a couple of years, is to get to the equivalent of $5 corn at 175 bushel an acre. But that really means about $300 net profit for the farmer. There's a lot of work that's going to take us to get there. First, we've got to get our yields, yields consistently up to 5 tons per acre. 5 tons per acre is 15 feet tall. It's a force. You gotta get the seed cost down to less than about 25 a pound. Everybody's seen with the seed bread. I talked to a guy in North Carolina yesterday. $500 a pound he did for seeds. Please don't do that. I mean, standard rates anywhere from $250 to $7 a pound. Uh, it's really expensive. There's supply chain problems around the seed. We need domestic production of seed in a bad way. And I would say that very, from the very beginning, South Carolina's program should focus on viable seed production. Absolutely. Most important thing in the industry, in my opinion, because it affects everybody. Whether you're in fiber, you're in grain, or you're in CBD, 
It's arguably one of the largest problems. This just came down from North Carolina. Everybody's planting late June, early July because they didn't get their seeds because it hung up us. Uh, we brought canast seed in from uh, Mexico this year. Never had a problem in the past. Overnight, the USDA said they would not accept one particular company's fumigation certification. Our stuff got stopped at the border for two weeks and had to pay a reefer truck for two weeks to sit there. Then had to pay and get fumigated again. It's just a pain in the ass. Um, I'm here to tell you. So I think, you know, seed production has got to be solved. So anyway, all things, all that fits, the opportunity looks good for producers at, at $5 corn. I think. I know it does, because here's the math on it. I'm done. Um, I, you know, it's hard to see what's going on here, but but basically, you know, we're not, if you look at the bottom left, this is the breakdown. What we have our farmers do is pretty straightforward. You get a contract from us, it literally says one, two, three, four, this is how you grow and harvest for us. You know, you, you disc it up, we'll do no-till, no-till looks pretty good. You gotta burn it down, you gotta spray the weeds. Contrary to some knowledge around here, you can't apply chemicals to him. By law, federal law. So make sure you guys know that. I just came from North Carolina. Not everybody knew that up there. You know, it's not, it doesn't seem to be enforced. So I'd be careful with that. So anyway, but you can spray the weeds. You can spray the weeds. So we do that. Um, then you talk about mowing, cutting, and, and, and bailing. That's the basic process for us. Somebody's asking about harvesting. Uh, it depends about the equipment. It depends on what you got. Generally, if you're set up for hay, you know, you're probably pretty well set up. You're not going to run a disc fire or mower conditioner for 15 foot tall plants, that's for sure. Simple bars, you know, are the way to go. If you're growing shorter stuff, then you can run up a disc mower grid. The bigger issue, though, is mowing. The bigger issue is baling. Brown um, bailers, you know, hit and miss. Uh, the best are tend to be silage bailers with the blades in the front. We can set the blades and cut it about a foot long. Otherwise, you get a lot of wrapping in the, in the round bailers. Large square bailers, of course, we don't have that many in Kentucky. There are a couple brands that seem to be pretty good. Massive Ferguson tends to go pretty fast. Um, it can actually handle 12 plus tall plants, but it's hit and miss. And so when we go to talk to farmers, we got to figure out what they got, what they can use, what can we rent, what's custom. Uh, we have developed our own our own chopper for this reason to help. I think there's more hay going on around here. So you guys uh, seem to have more access to large square gators, which is definitely a bonus. At least they do it look on. This is a map of, of, uh, of some of the counties we're growing in Kentucky. One, one issue in uh, you know, I'm kind of torn on that concept where they're going to distribute the, uh, the licenses around the state. Transportation costs are huge in this business, and in general, a processing facility like ours we need to get this material from ideally an average of 50 miles away, certainly within 100 miles. Uh, so there'll have to be pockets of production, communities around processing plants. All right, let's talk about the future. We need more plants. We need, I mean, we need more facilities. Uh, this is an exciting time, it's an exciting industry. You know, all those things that I said, this is complicated, it's hard, it costs a lot of money, but the future is real bright. And we see it in our company, we're rapidly expanding. We just, we're starting to set up our uh, second facility right now, we're building it in Alberta, Canada. Um, one of the reasons we're going up there is because they already have an existing, robust hemp and flax supply chain. They've been doing that for great for 20 some odd years up there. We can get introduced to the system a lot easier up there than a brand new program like down here. Uh, makes it a little easier on us. And so, uh, so that's where we're headed with our first satellite facility. Uh, but the reality is, is that by 2024 in our industry alone, the industry capacity will be large enough to support 12, 
major industrial facilities processing 7,900 pounds an hour, which is a little over 60 million pounds a year. Um, that's what they could, that's what the capacity is, it doesn't mean that's what the adoption rate would be. Uh, so it takes time. You know, not only do we have to build the farming supply chain, build the production supply chain, we gotta get all the, I mean, take a year and a half to trial with the company. It may take another year and a half for them to get their marketing and distribution locked down. It may take another year and a half for their customer to do all their trial. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lead time to get these things into the market. But there is a huge space going for where they're compatible and where there's a value proposition for using them, such that at the rate those industries are going and at the penetration we think is possible, there could easily be 12 plants by 2024 if we get the adoption there. So where are they going to be? Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of threw some darts at the map, but I think, you know, this is uh, where they're probably going to be. I tried to get one in South Carolina. I, I think there could be one there. Uh, Alright, well, let me, uh, let me mention something here because I came here a little bit selfishly. Uh, we're really interested in class. And I would say that there's, you know, I think we should talk about specialty crops, hemp being a specialty crop. There's not really, if we talk about what's good for the farmer, we're looking for alternative, looking for specialty crops. Let's not forget about canaf and flax, at least those are the ones I deal with as a fiber crop. And uh, we've done business here. Uh, we used to have a facility at King Street. Uh, we've leased one in Pamplico. We've sourced from here before. This is a spot for us, for sure. And uh, to the extent that we can do, you're, South Carolina is unique, not Hardly any other place in this country where you can grow flax for fiber as a winter crop. You can get up to the Dakotas and grow it as an oilseed crop, uh, but you're pretty unique in here for your climate to grow flax as a winter crop. Big opportunity around flax, and, and from my perspective, American and flax in the canap is, uh, is beautiful for us that we can do all three. And this is about the only place in the United States that we can do that. So I think there's an amazing opportunity around what we call biomaterials and the compatibility of synergy between these different plants. Uh, so we're really excited about this area, this region specifically. So uh, that's, uh, that's what I got. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And make sure that you subscribe to the iHemp Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Give us a review and follow us on facebook.com forward slash iHempRevolution. Like us, and then tell your friends. Help us spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. This is your host, Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and thanks for joining the iHempRevolution.